Well, good evening. It's good to see everybody. Hope that you're having a good week. The cool weather feels good and uh, good, to, good to come together and study God's Word. So turn with me to 1 Peter. We are to chapter 2 tonight. We'll look at verses 9 through 12 and uh, see what God has to say to us. Those of you joining us online, we welcome you also. Always have a good number on Wednesday nights, and then even the days the following Wednesday nights, people watching our, our study and joining us, so we're glad that you've joined us. Whatever day you're joining us, we appreciate it. Let's pray together. Father, thank you today for the opportunity to study your word. I thank you, Lord, for <clears throat> how you speak through the pages of the Bible directly to our hearts as if we're listening to your voice. Thank you for using one of your great disciples, Peter, to pen these words and inspiring him through the Holy Spirit so we can have the, the uh, inerrant, infallible word that you give to us. God, I pray that the Holy Spirit will be our teacher tonight. Thank you for everyone who's joined us. I pray your blessings upon them. Father, we do lift up uh, the nation of Israel tonight, that God, your hand would be upon them, that peace would come within the borders of your land and among your people. And Father, would you just watch over them May your sovereignty be in control tonight there as well. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, well, 1 Peter 2, verses 9 through 12 tonight. Remember, it's been about 33 years since Jesus was crucified and resurrected. It's now about 63 A.D. Uh, whenever Peter writes, there are some Gentiles who are believers in Jesus living along the south edge of the Black Sea up in Asia Minor. Today would be modern-day Turkey. They had probably heard the gospel at Pentecost 33 years earlier, got saved. Peter's preaching went back. Uh, and more believers, uh, they led other people to faith in Christ. But the culture around them in that area, not understanding the Christian faith that well. They opposed it. Subtle persecution of Christians began marginalization, uh, things like that, much like we face. And that's why First Peter relates so much to us in our culture today. So Peter writes to this group of people up on the Black Sea and tells them to a culture that's marginalizing them, discriminating against them, doesn't understand their faith, writes and says, first of all, remember some things and then act on some things. So chapter 1 of First Peter was basically what to remember. These are some theological truths to remember while you're trying to live out your faith in a culture that is antagonistic toward what you believe, doesn't understand your faith, and uh, marginalizes you, which they're doing in, in, to us and our nation, discriminating against Christians as well. So what do you remember, first of all? And then chapter 2 begins, how do you act toward the culture, and how do you act in, in living out your faith? So we saw last week at the beginning of chapter 2, Starting of all, put away, like taking off a baptismal garment we talked about, put away malice, deceit, hypocrisy, envy, and slander. Long for the pure spiritual milk of the Word. The Word's how we're going to grow. And then he goes on to describe two other settings that believers were. You're a building, uh, you're living stones built up as a temple, and then you are foundation stones like the foundation of Jesus Christ. So now starting tonight in verse 9, Peter continues with some interesting analogies. So let's look at those. Uh, letter A on your outline, first of all, verse 9, Israel's blessings become the believer's blessings. Verse 9, but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, 
a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. This is one of the most famous verses in all the first Peter. So let's take some time to unpack what he's saying. First of all, look at the first phrase, you are a chosen race. Now, everything he says in verse 9 originally applied to Israel in the Old Testament. Israel, he says, you're a chosen race. Israel in the Old Testament, you're a priesthood, you're a holy nation, you're a possession of God. Everything Israel was to be in the Old Testament, Peter now says to Christians, Gentile believers, you are now. So everything God had hoped to bless Israel with in the Old Testament, he now blesses you and I with in the New Testament. Abraham was the very first one God chose in the Old Testament to, be the, to begin the Jewish race. That happened in Genesis chapter 12. But remember who Peter's writing to. Remember who the believers on the Black Sea are. They're not Jews. They're like you and me. They're Gentiles. Gentiles are non-Jews. I'm not a Jew. Most of you, if not all of you, aren't Jewish tonight. So he's talking to you. You now are the chosen race. You now are the royal priesthood. You now are the holy nation. You are now God's own people. So it's changed from Israel's blessings to your blessings and, and my blessings. So, with the rejection of Jesus as the Messiah, God has created a new people through whom, through Jesus Christ, that he now seeks to accomplish the purpose he had in mind for the Old Testament. Now he's accomplishing it through you and me. Here's the question. Did you and I replace Israel in God's plan? Some Bible scholars say, yes, we are the new Israel. So everything in the New Testament that says Israel is you as believers. That's called replacement theology. We replaced Israel. And there are a lot of Bible scholars that believe that. But hold on a second. Because as you read the New Testament carefully, it looks like God still has a plan for the nation of Israel. Romans 11. They are grafted back in, Paul says. So how does that work? We're God's people and, and through spiritual faith. And Israel, of course, it's on our minds tonight with all that's going on over there. Israel is God's still nation, and that's still his land, according to Romans 11. So, it's not really necessarily a replacement, it's that we come alongside of Israel and God's plan. Now, Israel will not be saved just because they're Israel. They've got to trust Jesus as Savior. Right now, only 1% of Israel has done that. 1%. So 99% of Israel is God's people politically, but spiritually only you and I and 1% of the Jews are God's people spiritually that will go to heaven to be with him. Jews must receive Christ as Savior. What did Paul say when he's writing, brethren, my heart's desire and prayer and earnest plea to Israel is that they would be saved. 
They've got to trust Jesus. So it's, we didn't really replace Israel in replacement theology, but we, he has a plan for them, but he also spiritually, we are his people. So in the Old Testament, Israel was a physical race of people through the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. We're not descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, but we're descendants of Jesus Christ. So spiritually, we are his children, your chosen race. Notice the next phrase, you are a royal priesthood. Now, what does that mean? If you go back to the Old Testament, God's purpose for Israel initially was to be a nation of priests. Now, we know that the Levites became the priests, right? Tribe of Levi, but that was not God's original plan. His original plan was for the entire nation to be priests. Exodus 19.6 tells us that. And they would represent God to all the nations of the world as priests. That was God's original plan. But Israel started worshiping false gods, the golden calf at Exodus 32, and then they, so God withdrew that blessing from them being priests and gave it to the faithful tribe of Levi. So he took it away from the 11 other tribes and says, Levi, you're now to be, in Numbers chapter 3 and Numbers chapter 8, you're now to be my priests. But now in the New Testament, every believer in Jesus is a priest. You are a priest tonight. Without the work of the offering up of sacrifices, nobody's a priest. So what type of sacrifices do we offer? Remember last week, spiritual sacrifices. Question came last week, what are spiritual sacrifices? Well, we don't, as priests, drag bulls and goats and rams up here and sacrifice them every Sunday. We don't, we don't do that. What do we offer as sacrifices? Well, we offer prayers as sacrifice. We offer praise, the sacrifice of praise the New Testament talks about. We offer our talents. We offer our bodies. We offer our time. We offer our giftedness like we talked about last Sunday. Those are spiritual sacrifices that you and I make as priests before God. So every one of you tonight is a priest if you're saved. Some of you probably remember J. Vernon McGee, old preacher that... Uh, had the radio Bible hour, I think was the name of it, but he was on the radio preaching. He had one sermon that kind of raised eyebrows. Everybody thought, what? And the title of the sermon was, You Are a Catholic Priest. Well, the word Catholic, it means universal. And he's right. We, as believers, are universal priests. And he used this verse, You're a Catholic priest. You're a universal priest. And it raised eyebrows like, what? What's he saying? He's right. We are all priests in a universal sense before God. But now think about this phrase, royal priesthood. Royals, kingship. In the Old Testament, kings were not priests. Remember? Two separate offices. In fact, if you remember one time, King Saul didn't wait on Samuel to get there in time to offer the sacrifices before they went to battle. He said, oh, I'll do it myself. And he offered sacrifices, and it angered God. Kings, you don't offer, you don't offer priest offerings. Only priests do that. So what is a royal priesthood, a kingly priesthood? What's that? 
It's through Jesus. You see, Jesus is our king, and he's our priest. He brought both offices together from the Old Testament, wed them together into one. Kingdom of priests and kings. So now in Jesus, because of what he did, bringing the offices together, you and I are royal, kingly priests before God. So you don't see the phrase royal priesthood anywhere except the New Testament. Look at the next phrase. Your chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation. Now, you remember from a couple of Wednesday nights ago, the word holy does not mean sinless. It doesn't mean a moral sense of goodness. It means to be set apart. It means to be different. So now let's interpret it this way. You're a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a nation that is set apart. Some of your translations, I think, say that. A nation that is set apart. Now, in the Old Testament, God's original plan for Israel was to be a beacon of light so other nations would look to it and come to Yahweh. That was his plan. They didn't necessarily go to other nations. They were to be a light, a beacon so everybody else, kind of like the Statue of Liberty that stands there like this and all the nations come to us. That was God's plan for Israel initially. They would see their light, the other nations would, and they would come. It happened a little. Queen of Sheba came to see God's glory in 1 Samuel 8, and Naaman we saw in, uh, that, uh, that came in Second uh, Kings chapter 5, that came and, and accepted the God of Israel. We saw it a little bit, but Israel failed to be that light for the nations to see. And the reason they failed is because they wanted to be like the nations. They didn't want to be set apart. They wanted to be just like the other. We want a king like the nations. We want to worship their gods. We want to be just like them. And when you become just like them, you're no longer a light. They don't see any difference in you. So God's presence departed from Israel in Ezekiel chapter 10 because they failed to be the light. Folks, think about you and I and the culture in which we live. We are to be light in this dark culture. We can all agree tonight our culture is pretty dark in what they believe and how they act. And we should be so different, set apart as believers that they see who we are. They see our light and they're attracted to it. Let's not be like Israel and become just like them, think like them, act like them, value like them, vote like them, do everything like them. Let's be different. So now God has made Christians, the church, the bearers of light. But rather than sitting back and letting them look, he has commanded us to go to them. Matthew 28, 20. So we do here at this church, hoping to bear that light because we are a set-apart people. But look at the last phrase. A a people of God's own possession. Now, some of your translations say a peculiar people. Any of your translations say that tonight? Yep, quite a few of you. The word peculiar there does not mean odd, like we know peculiar means. 
but it means literally a, God, a people of God's own possession. He owns you. We're bought the price, so he owns you. This title, God's own people, appeared to Israel in the Old Testament. Exodus 19, Deuteronomy 4, Deuteronomy 7, Isaiah 43. Paul used it again, Ephesians 1.14. In the New Testament, God's own possession. You are owned by God. You're not your, you're not your own. You hear the phrase all the time, well, it's my body, I can do what I want. No, it, it's not. It's, if you're a Christian, it's not your body. It's not your life. You're bought. You're owned by somebody else. We are ordinary people, but because of who owns us, we're valuable. Terry Horton went in, she's from San Bernardino, California. She went into a thrift store there. And she saw a painting for $5, so she bought it. She didn't know anything about art. She went home and took it into her house, and she had one of her friends who was an art teacher come over, and she looked at that, and she said, where did you get that painting? She said, oh, I got it at the thrift store for $5. She said, you know, I, I think that may be a Jackson Pollock painting. She said, who's Jackson Pollock? Well, he's one of the most famous painters in the world. He's an abstract expressionist. And she had it valued, sure enough it was. And her $5 painting went up to $50 million painting. That's a pretty good investment, isn't it? Why? Because of the one who painted it. That's why. So, you and I are ordinary people. But whenever we're saved, according to Ephesians 2.10, we become his masterpiece. You become valuable, all because of who owns you. The summers, we always take, a, I teach a class at DBU, a doctoral class, and we always take doctoral students to Washington, D.C., and one of our stops is Mount Vernon in Virginia, and we go see Washington, George Washington's home and all this, and you have all these artifacts there. It looks just like normal items, but because George Washington owned them, oh, they're worth everything, just because of who owned them. We then go another day to, to, di uh, to different places, Ford's Theater, just because Lincoln owned it, it, things are valuable. I've been to the Billy Graham Library, I saw a Bible, it looks just like a normal Bible, but because Billy Graham owned it, it's encased. You see, normal, everyday items become valuable because of who owned them. You and I are just ordinary people, but because of who owns us, we become highly valuable because God owns us. You are a people of God's own possession. Now, G. Campbell Morgan said about this verse I just read, the description of the church is systematic and exhaustive. He writes, it is a race suggesting life. It is a priesthood so it has right of access to God. It is a nation, so we're under a government, God's government. It's a possession, so we're indwelt by Him. This is a beautiful verse that describes who you are in Christ. Now, one other note, there are some Bible scholars that believe this verse 9 was a reference to the Qumran community. Some of you that may have studied archaeology 
remember, Qumran was the community where they discovered the Dead Sea Scrolls in 1947. The Qumran community had their, if you, if you don't know what the Qumran community is, it's, a, it's out, in the, out in the desert, in the caves, south of Jerusalem, about in 45 minutes to an hour. We drive right by them whenever we're there. Caves, and there's a community of about 4,000 Jews in the 2nd century B.C. that lived out there. They were called the Essenes. Some think John the Baptist may have been an Essene because of where he baptized. You could, you, in fact, you can stand in the Qumran cave and look across, see the Jordan River right where John baptized. And because of how he dressed, they dressed odd. And because of what he ate, he ate locusts and wild honey, and they ate odd things. And so they were just this odd collective group of people that lived out at Qumran. And they had all these rules by which they lived by. And some of the rules they lived by was they declared among us 4,000 that we are a chosen race. And that we are a royal priesthood and a holy nation. And we're God's own people because we've given up the world to live for him. So there are some that look at this verse and go, that sounds just like the rules of Qumran. But so did Peter have some kind of connection? Did he know what was going on south out in the desert out there? We don't really know for sure. It's hard to make a connection from archaeology and, and documents, but it is odd that they included that exact same phrase in their rules for living in that community out there. But look at the next phrase. Chosen race, royal priesthood, holy nation, people of his own. Here's the reason why. That you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Now, Israel heard these things about themselves, chosen race, God's own people, and they got proud. They puffed their chest out and said, look at who we are in the Old Testament. God said to us, I didn't make you these things for you to puffed up your chest and think you're better than the world out there. I made you these things so that you will proclaim the one who made you that way, Jesus. You will proclaim his excellencies, not in a proud way. That you'll proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Now, all the way through the Bible, Gentiles are referred to people who live in darkness. Remember, people who lived in darkness have seen a great light, prophesying Christmas. They, Gentiles are always referred to people who live in darkness because they're lost. In, in general, they were lost. And so they were people in darkness. And whenever they got saved, you came out of darkness and light. Well, now here are these Christians living up on the Black Sea who are Gentiles who got saved. So they literally were out of darkness into light. And another point, who is called the prince of darkness in Scripture? Satan. So when you're lost, you're in darkness under the domain of Satan. But whenever you're saved... You see the light. You come to the light. And our job is to proclaim the one who called us out of that darkness into the light. Now let's go to verse 10. Letter B on your outline. The reversal of children's names. Verse 10. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, 
but now you have received mercy. Now, Peter in this verse is highlighting the difference in Christians by contrasting what they were like before they were saved and now after the conversion, what they're like as believers. But it's a little deeper than that. Let me go back to the Old Testament. In the Old Testament, God told Israel, you are my people and I will extend mercy to you. But they, they abused that. They abused both of those. And so God sent prophets to them to tell them, unless you turn back to me from your sinfulness, I'm going to reject you. They didn't listen to the prophets. One of the prophets that spoke this was a prophet by the name of Hosea. Eighth century prophet. And he prophesied, unless you turn back to God, yes, you're his people. Yes, he's going to extend mercy to you. But as his people, if you don't turn, he's going to reject you if you don't turn back to him. And they didn't believe Hosea. So God wanted Hosea to do something really strange to get their attention. He said, Hosea, I want you to marry a prostitute. What? I'm a godly man. I'm I'm a holy man. I don't run around prostitutes. It's going to be a picture, Hosea. Your marriage is going to be a picture of my people who are to be holy who have joined themselves to the world. Your marriage is a picture. So he married a prostitute by the name of Gomer. Yes, a woman named Gomer. Married her, and they got ready to have their first child, a little boy. And God said, I want you to name the little boy Jezreel. That's an odd name. Jezreel is the valley in Israel where the battles are fought. It's where the battle of Armageddon is going to take place. It's one of the most significant battlefields in all the world where the most blood has been shed. Why would you name your child Jezreel? It would be like you and I naming our child Holocaust. It's a bad memory. Wow. Because every time little Holocaust runs around, it's a reminder that because you rejected me, there will be bloodshed in your nation. Got time to have a second child with Gomer and Hosea. Is a little girl this time. He said, I want you to name her Lo-Ruamah. Lo in Hebrew is no or not. Ruamah is mercy. So he named his little girl No Mercy. So that would be an odd name when they would see this little girl running around, No Mercy, No Mercy, No Mercy. It would be a reminder that I have granted you mercy, but you haven't turned back to me. So I'm taking the mercy back from you as a reminder. See, his whole family was an illustration. Then they had a third child, another little boy. And God said, I want you to name him Loami. Lo, meaning no or not, Ami's the word for people. You're not my people anymore. So as little Loami grows up and everybody calls his name, they're constantly reminding we're not God's people anymore. And that would cut them to the heart. So he had these children, Jezreel, Lo Ruama, and Loami. As a reminder, I have turned from you. But now look what verse 10 says, Peter. Now, 
you once were not a people, Loami, now you're God's people. You once did not receive mercy, Loruama, but now you receive mercy. I am reversing the names of Hosea's children, and once again, I'm taking you back. As believers in Jesus, you're now God's people, you now receive mercy. Paul did the exact same thing in Romans 10 with the names Loruama and Loami from Hosea, Old Testament prophet. Now, go to letter C on your outline. Verses 11 and 12 will close. Keeping your conduct honorable. Now, in this next section, verses 11 and 12, and we'll see it more next week. Next week's very interesting, by the way. We'll talk about how our role is and how we deal with the government. That'll be interesting next week, starting in verse 13. But in 11 and 12, Paul, or rather Peter, now shifts. He, he goes from talking about theology to ethics. He goes from talking about what you should do or, or, and believe as to how you should live. He goes from the vertical relationship between us and God to the horizontal relationship. How are you to live among other people? Verse 11, he talks about it in a negative sense. Verse 12 in a positive sense. We'll look at both of those and we'll close. Look at verse 11. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which war against your soul. Now, let's talk about verse 11 first. Notice the first phrase, beloved. With that one word, Peter takes that congregation up here on the Black Sea, grabs them, and pulls them in close to his heart. Beloved. I care deeply for you. Beloved, that's something to tell you. Please listen to me. Beloved, I urge you. Paul did the same thing. Paul said, beloved, I urge you. Usually marks a new section of a letter. I, I urge you. As sojourners and exiles, abstain from passions of the flesh. Now, let's talk about sojourners and exiles. Abraham was in exile and lived as an exile in Canaan, outsider, according to Hebrews 11, 9. Sojourners and exiles had no rights to the land they were living in. They were strangers. They were just temporary residents. Those Gentiles in Asia Minor probably were not citizens of the Roman Empire. They probably were sojourners and exiles and temporary residents so he used that analogy to say just as you're really not a roman empire citizen you're really not a citizen of earth you're a citizen of heaven you remember the old song we used to sing this world is not my home i'm just a passing through that's what he's talking about here you're really not members of the Roman Empire, but that's okay because you're not members down here either. You're, you belong to another kingdom. And he did this in something that was called a hendiatus. Some of you know what a hendiatus is. It's the same in English as it is in Greek. It's a figure of speech where you, use, you put a complex idea together and you form two substances with the word and. 
sojourners and exiles. Peter does it again later with saying shepherd and overseer. If we were to say it's a nice and warm day outside, that's indictus. Nice and warm. So he takes two concepts, joins them together with an, and again, maybe a reference to the fact that they really weren't residents there. But what were they to do there? They were to abstain from the passions of the flesh. Whatever it was that would keep them out of God's will that made them give in to their earthly cravings, he said, don't do it. Folks, there are things that appeal to our flesh today that we shouldn't be a part of either. Dr. Peter Davids, uh, he's one of the foremost theologians, by the way, on the book of Peter and James both. Teaches some at Houston Christian University, it used to be Houston Baptist in their graduate program. But listen to what he says. He says the knowledge that they do not belong to this world, talking about the residents up there in Peter, does not lead them to withdraw from culture, but to take the, their standards of behavior from their home culture of heaven, not the culture in which they're living, so that their life always fits the place where they're headed, not where they are. That's a good word. You and I should always be living in a sense that our passions fit where we're going, not where we live. Passions, Peter said, that wage war against your soul. It's easy to see today how the pursuit of flesh can destroy our physical body. The alcoholic dying of liver disease can see that what the flesh does to your body. Those with sexually transmitted diseases, about 350,000 people last 24 hours got a sexually transmitted disease. They can see what the flesh of the, of, of the body can do to us. Waging war, Peter says, though, against your soul. You think those things have an effect on your body, you ought to see what they do to your spirit. That's what he's saying. Watch out then for the, the desires that wage war against your soul. You know, again, my mind went to Peter, followed Jesus for three and a half years there in the Gospels, and he had those moments where it's like a, way, a war was waging in his soul, and Jesus looked at him and said, Peter, get behind me, Satan, and all those other times. Was he thinking about himself? Was he thinking about himself? Whenever he said, those things that wage war against your soul. Go to verse 12, we'll close. This is all part of letter C there, keeping your conduct honorable. Verse 12, keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak of you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Now let's look at this verse and we'll wrap it up. First of all, he says, keep your conduct among the Gentiles, in other words, among lost people, honorable. What a great word for you and I living in our culture. No, we don't agree with what they believe. No, we don't agree with what they are, are, are doing in our culture. But we should always keep our conduct honorable. So they don't talk about you as evildoers. Now, the word evildoer there is interesting. It's not really necessarily a criminal. 
It literally means in the Greek language, bad actor. The lost should not be able to look at you and say, you're a bad actor. You're claiming to be a Christian, and your actions are not backing it up. So it literally means bad actor. Now remember, Christians at this time and place were being slandered from from the lost world. They were accusing Christians of evil things. Remember, I talked about it last week. Remember at this time when Peter wrote, 63 AD, they were accusing Christians of being cannibals. Remember that? Remember why they would be accused of being cannibals? Lord's Supper. They didn't, the world didn't understand whenever they would gather in these secret meetings and they would eat body and drink blood and so they accused them of being cannibals. They were also accused of wild sexual orgies. How would, you, how would you interpret Christians in the first century? Because they would gather for what they called have agape feasts, love feasts. They knew it to be church gatherings. But the world took it to be wild sexual orgies, and they accused the Christians of that. They were also accusing the Christians of being antisocial because they would not go along with the immoral entertainment of the day. And they were accused in that time period of being atheists because they would not worship the gods of the Roman Empire. So, a lot of accusations against Christians. How do you combat all those accusations? You live a good life. You don't be a bad actor in front of them. You live a good life. Listen to what William Barclay said. The striking fact of history is that by the lives the Christians lived during this time period actually did defeat the slander of the lost world. In the early part of the 3rd century, so 200 years later, Celsus made the most famous systematic attack upon the Christians in which he accused them of being ignorant, foolish, and superstitious, but he never said a word about them being immoral. 200 years later, the harshest critic Christians ever had in writing said they're foolish, they're ignorant, they're superstitious, but they're not bad people. So their conduct was good. And folks, our conduct needs to be good. They may accuse us of a lot of things out there. They may accuse us of being ignorant and bigots and accuse us of being whatever. And we get that. But don't let them accuse us of being bad actors. May they look at us and say, hey, they're good people. Regardless of what they believe, they're good people. Now, remember, if this was written in 63 A.D., you remember what happened the next year, 64 A.D.? Anybody from history remember 64 A.D.? What happened? Rome burned. Rome was in poor shape, and Nero was their leader, and Nero was being accused of everything, and everybody was upset at Nero. And so to divert attention away from himself, eh, the theory is, I don't know, I have exact proof, but maybe he had Rome burned. And who did he blame it on? The Christians. Those backward, 
people that no longer, remember now, they're disassociated with Judaism. For a long time, Christians were seen as a sect of Judaism. But by 64 AD, they're no, Judaism's kind of respected in the empire, but not Christianity. Those backward Christians, they're the cause of it. And Christianity was beginning to be spoken of badly by the time Peter wrote. And the next year, they'd be accused of a lot of different things. But their conduct, he says, make sure your conduct among the Gentiles is always honorable that they will not speak of you as bad actors. But they will see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. You remember the Sermon on the Mount? You remember Jesus in Matthew 5? Remember what he said? He said that live your life in such a way that people will see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. And Peter's saying the exact same thing. When Peter wrote that, he was there that day listening to the Sermon on the Mount. He was a follower of Jesus. Did that, was that sermon ringing in his mind when he wrote that? That you may, that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father. Not glorify you. Glorify Him. And then the last phrase. On the day of visitation. What on earth is that? Well, there are a lot of theories. It's an odd phrase. It's mentioned again, Isaiah 10, uh, verse 3. Day of visitation. What does that mean? Four theories. One theory is day of visitation. Peter's talking about the day that, that all the people will stand before God in judgment. When God visits his people on the day of judgment. Great white throne judgment. Maybe. Second theory, it could mean on the day Jesus visits us at his second coming. Maybe. Day of visitation. Thirdly, it could mean seven years later when Titus would destroy Jerusalem as a part of God's judgment upon his people. Day of visitation. Jerusalem's destroyed. Maybe. Fourth theory is, it could mean on the day that Christians are brought to trial in the Roman Empire for being a Christian, where it's now officially illegal to be a Christian, the day God visits his people. Maybe. We don't really know what that phrase means. But so, as you look at all this together, some theologians see in this passage Peter's battle plan to confront your culture. How do you do it? He says, the conflict with culture is not won by aggressive behavior against them. It's won by good conduct and good works. Peter's vision is that the exemplary behavior of Christians will change the mind of the accusers. Not out arguing them, not out shouting them. The conduct overcomes evil with good. Folks, may the members of First Baptist Church of Garland, may you tonight and may I live honorable lives of good conduct so that even if people out there call us whatever they want to call us, one thing they can't call us is bad actors. Let's pray together. Father, thank you tonight for the word that you've given to us and how that applies to us tonight. 
God, I just pray that in a culture that does not understand you, nor does understand what we believe, and they, they mock us many times for believing it. Lord, I pray that our conduct among them will be honorable. That through our good deeds, they'll glorify you. So, Father, help us to be those kind of Christians and that kind of people. And thank you that in Jesus, you have made us a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a people of your own. Father, and a holy nation. Thank you that, God, you have reversed the names of Hosea for us. We are your people, and we do get your mercy. We praise you for that tonight. In Jesus' name, amen. God bless you. We'll see you Sunday.